Um, all right, so welcome to Colcast episode three. I'm Logan. And I'm Nate. And we're here with our guest, Luke McComey, a.k.a. Pyro. Thanks welcome. for having me, you guys. Thanks for coming again. So <laughs> we've already talked a little bit, but um, I guess start. let's start with uh, your story, background. Who is, who is Luke? Who's Pyro? Yeah, I, uh, I've been with uh, Coal Fire for about four years now. Uh, I am a CXO advisor, uh, and I help with the lab side of the house, uh, specifically on offensive security. So this is anything that is the, the technical side of, of what Coal Fire does, um, separate from the specific compliance-driven type work. Sweet. And how did you get into hacking? Like, what was your like origin story? I, uh, it's, it's been a hobby my whole life. Um, I got in some trouble with uh, computers when I was 12, when I was 14. What was the, what was the first thing like that drew you to hacking itself? What first lured you into You know, it? interesting. Ever since I was a little kid, I always had to take everything apart to understand how it would work. Uh, mm. my grandmother used to love telling the story, how she got me like this little crane um, little toy crane and that, you know, by the, the end of the like first day that I'd had it, I disassembled the remote control and had figured out ways to like bridge across different connections and points to make it do different things than what it was supposed to be doing. Um, computers were very much the same way. I, I got into computing, um, very much at the, the start of personal computing, um, at a friend that gave, uh, us a Vic, uh, um, you know, Commodore 64, there's a Vic 20, uh, we had like an 8086 at one time that I'd play with. And, and some of these machines were, were just so old that it was, it was kind of crazy how you couldn't really do much on them. You know, you'd do a lot of work to get them to do something really, really, really simple. Mm-hmm. Uh, I know that we talked earlier, uh, you know, the first stuff that I was really recording, you know, when you talk about the Commodore 64 days, it's like you would write an application or a program. And you would save that to a floppy disk, like an audio cassette tape. <laughs> and, and that's literally, you know, what would be the version of like a flash drive nowadays or a hard drive now mm-hmm. would, would be these things recording on audio cassettes. Um, but it, you know, it kind of evolved from that. I, I had some teachers in school that, that were really good at, at kind of pushing me and challenging me because they saw that I had a natural aptitude with the computers. Um, and, and because I was kind of a, a small fish uh, or, or sorry, a big fish in a small pond, you know, being out in the middle of Wyoming. Mm. Um, once I'd started kind of, of making movement in, in this direction, started studying and playing with computers in this direction, it, it was amazing how much uh, support I got from not only the community, but other types of people that were around that, that saw I had an interest and, and, you know, saw that it was something I wanted to do. Mm. Um, I ended up founding Root Seller Security Team when I was 16 years old. Uh, I, I was the, the first engineer for Rocky Mountain Internet uh, when Andy Hansen spun all that up in the day. Um, I was still in school at that time. I'd gotten in trouble for hacking like the, the year before. And my father and him worked together on the sheriff's department. And Andy had mentioned that he was going to go out and create this, this Internet company. Um, I mean, and- what was the nature of the trouble that you got into? If you, don't, if you don't mind. Uh, yeah, I, well, the, the first one was with the school district. Um, it was an old Novell network. Mm-hmm. And uh, it was very, it was this menu-driven, you know, running on top of DOS batch, uh, you know, kind of processing type uh, networking system. And it, it ran on token ring uh, to show you how long ago this is. Mm-hmm. And um, I, I had learned a way to to escape out of of the batch file that was actively running, and it would get me out to a DOS prompt. I switched my directories over and found this directory. I think it was X or Z at the time that, that was full of all these administrative tools. And I started playing with these tools 
Uh, the one that got me in trouble was a command called send. And I <laughs> had pulled up the help on, on the send that just, you know, showed you these different things. And it said send space, and then it, you know, the username. And then it gave a couple other options and then send, you know, the message. And, and when you would type send, you know, to Paul, hi, Paul, you know, this is Luke, then that message would pop up on his screen. Wow. So I, I dug with the command a little bit and I was having fun playing with, you know, sending my friends some messages and stuff and then not telling them how I was doing it. <laughs> just, just thought I was so cool, you know, uh, doing absolutely nothing back then. But, but I ended up, you know, after digging in a bunch more, I found that everyone was the name of a user you could send to capital letters, right? So I sent, mm. send everyone. I am God. Oh <laughs> man. Now what I didn't realize is that because this is a token ring network and the way the everyone command went is that it just sent it to every single connected user that existed in the domain and in the network. Uh, it, it just would blast through. So I essentially DDoSed my school accidentally with the message that said, I am God. <laughs> and, and it got me, got me kind of spanked a little bit. So I ended up having to, you know, if I wanted to be on a computer, I had to have teacher supervision and I wasn't oh. allowed to play and wander and everything else. A <laughs> um, couple of years after that, I, uh, and, and, you know, that's kind of really where I'd cut my teeth and, and gotten interested. Um, a couple of years after that, I had a, a friend, um, a girlfriend, and her, her father was the one who had kind of helped kept pushing me and, and getting me information and, and material. And he had far better and more powerful computer than I did at the time. I think I had a 486 SX, you know, running a whole four meg of Ram. I don't know what that is. Exactly. Exactly. So <laughs> yeah, I know you'll never need more than four megs of Ram. <laughs> right, right. Exactly. So SX and, and DX, DX was the 486 processor by Intel that had a math coprocessor. I had the X, the SX, wow. no coprocessor. So <laughs> this is this is like you know your 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 calculator nowadays has a better processor wow. than than what our computers did at the time. But this guy pushed me forward, and 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 we started doing a lot of different work together. And I joined up with a group of people, and we ended up compromising um, through these dial-up modems. A a company that was one of the first companies to to provide public internet um, out there. Uh, had a gentleman that, that essentially did the equivalent of an RMRF and, and nuked a database and it made it to where this, this place, uh, nobody could log into this or, or get on the internet via this service. And, and it was a bit of a, a, a problem. Now, was this for like lulls or was it for like education? Like what was your mindset? Uh, you know, when? originally it was cause we liked like messing with each other. It, you know, we figured out that on these <laughs> Livingston portmasters that you could connect with a modem and it'd give you an IP address. And if you telneted back to the gateway that it was assigned to, which was the address, the IP address of the Livingston portmaster, you could log into it just with admin. You didn't even have to have a password. So you'd just type admin as the username and you'd be able to then pass commands to, um, you know, to this device. So we learned how to start hanging up on people that were connected. So my buddy, Mike, he'd call me up and he's like, Hey, I'm downloading, you know, this brand new game. I'll have it down in a couple of days. We'll throw it on a bunch of floppy disks. You know, we can play it together kind of a deal, but I'd mess with him. Like I'd know, you know, I'd call him up and I could tell that he was online because his phone line was busy. So if I wanted to talk <laughs> oh, to him, yeah. I'd just dial into the, <laughs> the living support master and then disconnect his connection, which would also kill his download. And he couldn't <laughs> resume downloads back then. So it was like a really nasty toll oh, to do to man. somebody. Um, but again, one of the people that were, was part of this group and kind of doing this uh, did the wrong thing. It got us a lot of attention. Um, mm -hmm. I ended up doing a, 
uh, a bunch of different stuff to help around the the local uh, um, school district with their computers, like helping after school. I ended up spending a summer uh, as part of a behavioral rehab program uh, mm. with the the county, where I was out digging ditches and irrigation ditches and sounds painting. like community service. That's exactly what okay. it was. Okay. Uh, I just I had never been convicted of anything, so okay. you know that, okay. it okay. wasn't that. It's, all right, all right, I'll give but, you that. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but I ended up you know doing stuff like uh, I, I'll never forget sitting there with like these big ten foot long sections of wood, dipping them into this caustic paint that was so nasty uh, it's for the the trail markers for snowmobilers in Yellowstone. The, the paint was so caustic that we'd walk outside of the building and our eyes would swell shut from fresh air. You know, it was oh like that kind of stuff. Right. So I spent a summer doing really hard work with the county and, and with this work program doing that. And it the cool thing about the program was is that it taught me to how to interview, taught me how to, you know, shake hands, how to oh, write a resume, cool. do all this other type of stuff. And, and it really did help kind of move me forward. So hmm. it was it was a beneficial program. So I've got a question. Um you you started your company at 16. Like what yeah. sort of challenges were there around that? Like how, how does a 16 year old start a company? Well, uh, a 16 year old starts a company when you have a group of people who are hanging out together and uh, researching what is, is now commonly referred to as cybersecurity and, and, you know, hacking and these types of things. We, we had an interest. There was a small group of us friends and, um, we, we started getting contracts of, of people that were wanting us to come out and fix their computers. You know, they didn't understand what security was. They didn't understand what hacking was. There wasn't really any kind of an industry um, in this yet. Uh, but, but because once again, you know, big fish, small pond, um, we ended up working with like Bureau of Indian Affairs and a bunch of school districts out on the reservation, um, helping deploy computers and, and doing all of this other stuff. And I, I needed a way to be able to bill it. I needed to be able to, to a way to work it. And at the time, uh, it was just myself and another individual um, who were doing a lot of this work. Uh, and Devin Keenan is his name. Um, and we had had kind of built this up and, and 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 moved forward with this. This is now, you know, we're we're now talking about moving into like my first year of college, my second year of college. Um, you know, timeline wise, this would be 1996 through about 1998, uh, and. You know, we had a hacking organization uh, called Hack, Hackers Against Corporate Culture, that was running out of Central Wyoming College. And at the time, one of our, our individuals uh, did some things that were quite questionable on, on the legality scale. And we ended up getting a visit. And uh, Devin's father uh, was a lawyer, and we went to him at the time, and we're like, you know, we're, we're potentially in a really bad situation here. We're adults now. You know, you don't get the same slap on the wrist that you did when you were a kid. Um, and at this point, the, the world had started kind of moving in the direction of, of, of treating, you know, hackers and people that were doing this, this type of thing as criminals. So we, we didn't really know which, which step to take. And Devin's father, who was a lawyer at the time, advised us that we should incorporate and become a business. Um, so what had been this hacking organization for a couple of years and that we'd kind of been hiding behind as a shell company and using as a name and everything else, we legitimately opened as, as a business and went and got a business license and started a web page and did oh, all of this nice. kind of stuff. And this was, this was right before DEF CON 7 at this point. That's funny that you mentioned getting the company started just to avoid legal issues. <laughs> I've, I've heard similar advice from others before, and I actually went and made an LLC just as like a, just in case something happens and I get in trouble. It's like, okay, I'll, I'll fizzle the LLC, blame it on that. And I'm like, you get some sort of like legal, um, 
like grace, I guess. Like they'll have mercy on you as long as you dissolve your LLC. Yeah, I don't know that that would play anymore. Well, yeah. yeah, a but lot of times. It's, like, a, it's a different world today, but you're you're absolutely right. At the time, it, it made sense to us, and it made it to where people recognized us as a legitimate organization and business. Um, I will never forget, uh, rest his soul, he just passed away recently, but John Perry Barlow uh, at the Rocky Mountain Security Conference uh, that was held at uh, the university. Um, there was a member of the FBI at the time who stood up and was was kind of trolling and and definitely bashing on John Perry Barlow, who was like the keynote speaker of this event, uh, because he the the person in the FBI was angry that the EFF would represent somebody um, that was doing something questionable. Specifically, the the FBI officer uh, that was speaking was trying to to pin John Perry Barlow down because he he was saying that the EFF was defending pedophilia and other types of horrible things out there on the internet by, by pr- protecting people's electronic freedoms and rights. Mm. And John stood up and, and made myself and my team stand up so that he could introduce us. And he was explaining at the time that, you know, we, we were the future and that, that the people that were doing this type of work and thinking like this, and we're going out with the intent of, of making the world a safer, better place. We're going to be the ones that, you know, we're going to take this industry by hold. And, you know, the man was, man was a bit of a visionary. I don't know if I believed it myself back then, um, but you look 20 plus years now later, and this is one of the largest industries in the world. In my opinion, one of the most important industries to make sure for the safety, the healthy, you know, the security and safety of people, it's important to, to have, you know, health in, in all of this stuff. It's a, it's a shame that like, despite all the crazy changes that have happened over those last 20 years, that that sentiment is still around and, and very prevalent today that like the EFF and security people in general, like pro encryption, pro privacy, like you have to have some sort of bad ulterior motive, like pedophilia or, right. or like, you know, you're a thief. Uh, why, why should I try to like protect my stuff? I don't have anything to hide. Like, right. I can't stand that argument and it's been around for so long. There's still people that it is. I mean, at way. this point you, I, when I hear it, I've just got to accept the person's a bit of a Luddite, uh, by choice. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and you know, and I don't mean that disrespectfully. I mean, truly when just they're ignorant of, of the necessity or, or, or choosing to be. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's that, you know, it, who hasn't received a phishing email? You know, right. who, who hasn't downloaded a bad app on their phone? Who hasn't, you know, had something like this happen at this point? There's, there's no way of, of not acting as if the threat actor is already inside. We, we have to all assume that we're already compromised. Um, when, when I hear that argument nowadays, it's, it's just one of those where I, I feel it's a, it's a great opportunity to educate somebody. It's a great opportunity to have a conversation with somebody and to try to connect them to the reality uh, that is today's operating environment world. Yeah, I, th- I think that's important, like connecting with people that um, don't they're not in the industry. They, they don't know, uh, like the layman, you know, uh, that's why I wanted to do the podcast. That's why I uh, did that nerd night talk. Like, I think getting out of our, our inner circles where we're, you know, trying to one up each other on like, oh, well, I have a stronger encryption than you do. Like, right. uh, you may use LastPass. That's in the cloud. I use a private key pass. That's yeah. all offline. Yeah. Like. It's what we were just talking about before this, right? The the days of the security rock star are long gone. Yeah. The rock star is dead. At this point, if you are not functioning and operating as a team, as a unit, mm-hmm. you know, towards a greater purpose, towards a mission or a goal, you're you're kind of left behind. Yeah. Um, it's it's about like the overall betterment of the world at this point. Exactly. Not like the cool hacks. Right, right. Yeah. I don't care about your O Day. That's great. That's yeah. that's really neat. You know, if this was twenty years ago, you'd be worshipped, you know, it like like you were some kind of a deity for the fact that you could put this stuff together. 
nowadays, you know, we're, we're watching kids come to DEF CON and go to KidCon and find, you know, what was it? 48 exploits and 10 minutes of time or whatever it was <laughs> wow. against a mobile platform. And, and, you know, and you're, and you're, they're truly children. These are people under the age of 18 that are doing this research and this work. And it's stuff that would, you know, when I, when I look back at accomplishments that I'm proud about and jobs that I've done that are amazing and things that we've discovered or done, it, it's just funny because the, the stuff that was so big back then and so impressive back then is, it seems so childish now. Right. Yeah. Well, and, uh, you mentioned like the the children getting involved that's one thing that i've learned a little bit more about recently and it's kind of blown me away like when i was doing the uh, girl scouts thing that happened recently these like nine ten year old girls are like oh yeah i program at school that's just they're not taking programming classes this is just being taught at public schools to yeah 10 year old little kids like how to code yeah mind-boggling yeah like, that's something. same thing my my kid it was he came home and he was sitting there writing stuff and go and i was just like this is awesome <laughs> it's like i had no idea this was something you're interested in and he's like oh i'm i'm not really it's just something i'm gonna do for school and it's like Thank you, school <laughs> curriculum. Yeah. Like, this is great. <laughs> yeah, I like just the changes that I've seen, and I'm young, so I can only imagine like like someone that's been around. An old guy like me. Yeah, right. <laughs> is that what you're saying? I'm as dinosaur. soon as I said that, I was like, oh no. <laughs> but no, like you, you get it though. Like uh, the <laughs> yeah. the amount of of both formal education and informal education just has increased like exponentially. Yeah, like it's, no it's starch unreal. press. Yeah, no starch press. Bill Pollock, everything that the that team is doing is just amazing. Um, you know, Singress did a lot of really cool stuff. They had amazing books back in the time. O'Reilly has always been epic for that kind O'Reilly, of stuff. Yeah. You know, you gotta give them, you gotta give these guys credit cause it, they made what was a really challenging thing, you know, um, referenceable and obtainable and, and resourceable, which was, was really sick. You know, when nowadays you've got a lot of really cool resources out there where you can go and, and look up videos and information and read you know, whatever the book of the the day is, you know, on, on somebody's website, but it's, it's not the same as being able to pick up like one of those really thick reference manuals and mm-hmm. like a TCP IP guy. Right, right, right. <laughs> and feel like when you're done reading it, it's like, okay, I've got, you know, I, I maybe digested 30 or 40% of what I just read, but I'm going to read it again. <laughs> and this time I'm going to get 40 or 50. It's, you know, it's a different way that they learn nowadays. I, I think that a lot of people take for granted how much the industry has shifted in 20 years. You know, when we Again, we were talking about it earlier before the recording started, but when you look at where things were 20 years ago, companies, the only time they were really caring about getting a vulnerability assessment done or a penetration test done was because there was a fear of compromise or they had already been compromised. Like it was a response type situation. You really didn't have, you know, policies or, or, or guidelines, compliance requirements, these types of things pushing this stuff. So everybody was just kind of winging it doing the best that they could and trying to figure out, you know, how, how can we adequately protect and, and secure ourselves against these types of threats? You look at shift that now 20 years forward and you look at today. When I go out and I talk to C-level executives about, you know, the security around the, these large businesses and corporations that we work with here at Coal Fire, the conversation isn't about whether or not they have a firewall, whether or not they're doing security awareness training necessarily. It's, it's these larger comp or larger uh, discussions around the enterprise movement, the the practice of of security, you know, the art of information security, and making sure that you know policy, procedure, the the human element, the the physical element of the the servers and the systems, all the stuff that's being moved out to the cloud, you know, all all these things that are needed for their day to day business to be able to be successful and to be able to operate. 
information security has to be built into all of that. Yeah. It's like holistic. It's not just like a thing to tack on at the end. Correct. And then, but with that said, it still breaks my heart that, you know, 20 years later, we still see large businesses and companies that call us up and they're like, we've got to do our once a year annual pen test. Can, can you come and do the pen test? Well, absolutely we can, but you know, we, we would rather be helping you, you know, come up with an enterprise program that makes sure that you are, are consistently reducing risk and moving forward that, that effort. Yeah, it's it's as fun as it is to hack a company and like, you know, oh, I got DA. Look, I'm in the CEO's email. Like I <laughs> I honestly enjoy the engagements where I really have to struggle to get the tiniest bit of access. Yeah. Cuz mm-hmm. that means that the company is actually like doing Secure. Yeah, they're they're due diligence, they're bare minimum. Yeah, they've done it before. <laughs> yeah. They've gotten they've got in the ring before. They've had somebody come up and and knock them down a few times and and you know, point out where their flaws and and weaknesses are. They've They've pointed out that they have to be on top of their patch cycle. They've pointed out that you can't do things like when you give your your third party pen testers your your IP list. You don't think, do things like exclude your you know your smart TVs and your phones and your conference rooms and those things are all absolutely critical because those tend to be a a point of you know when you when you trace back the indicators of compromise and understand where the attack came from. It's unreal how often it's those services and those types of things that people just ignore because they don't think they're important. Yeah, like oh look, the this webcam that we had has an internet facing IP. And yeah, it's coffee admin machines admin. are plugged like, into the internet yeah. now. You <laughs> yeah. know, it's, you, right. that was that was one of my favorite things. It's like you guys didn't like the way the coffee machine was was doing stuff, so you guys hacked the coffee machine. Whoa, whoa, point, whoa. Yeah, to, nobody to make it hacked the coffee machine. What are oh. you talking about? Oh, okay, that's that. that, that didn't you didn't know about that. No, no, I'm just no, but yeah, I didn't know about it. Yeah. The coffee machine. Nobody, I see what nobody this is. hacked the coffee machine. Uh huh. Now you're now you're just sitting here doing the. I don't know what? if he's doing yeah, a bit or not. Yeah. What are you talking about? You didn't know the coffee machine got hacked. The coffee machine wasn't hacked. Oh, I yes, mean, it was. that's I had I heard it wasn't hacked. Oh, that's that's, that's not at all what I said. Oh. <laughs> yeah. Somebody hacked it. Yeah, we got we got approval. Like uh, they they oh, ran we got it approval. By. Yeah. Oh, they were, they were, that one the one see, we got approval for. Yeah, see, we exactly. Oh, okay. That one I do know about. <laughs> oh, okay. See, see, exactly. I, I like I like the way it is here. It's the it's the friendier, right? It's the no, no. That was my friends that did that. I have to protect yeah. them. They're the gonna get kids. in trouble yeah, recording this. The other kids, the other kids <laughs> hacked the coffee. That's machine. right. The yeah. other kids did it. <laughs> oh man. Luke, so you were talking about like how a 16-year-old kid formed a business. How did that 16-year-old kid end up on the Tiger team? Um, Tiger <laughs> team was cool. Uh, it, it was a neat experience. At first, I was really reluctant. Uh, both, you know, I, we had a friend that reached out to us. He had a buddy that worked out in Hollywood. He produces shows and, and, and does all this stuff. At the time, reality TV was just kind of, you know, becoming something. Um, and this this person had reached out to to my friend Corey Garnett and had said, "Hey, you know, Squeak, we we want to do this TV show about hacking and about you know all this cool stuff that we see about people breaking and entering and stealing all this stuff from businesses. You know, is is this something you could help us with?" And and he put us he put them in touch with me, and we started visiting. And it it was about six months of us dragging our feet. You know, when I talked to Ryan and Chris, they they were also very hesitant. We Back then, the industry was was very very shy about anything to do with the media, mm-hmm. um, and and even after we we said that we would go ahead and push for it, uh, we had to fight pretty hard to to get uh, technical production credit to to help make sure that you know what we put together. They would shoot ninety six hours worth of footage to create twenty one minutes for a single episode. Wow! So to make sure that the twenty one minutes is is something that was relevant and pieced together and made sense and kind of had a flow. You know, it, it was a it was a bit of a challenge. Like we went through many iterations during editing, but 
Chris Ryan and I uh, did the show. Um, you know, at the time we thought it was gonna it was gonna be kind of harsh in in the way that the industry uh, looked at it. But to be honest, it was extremely well received. Um, we've gotten a lot of good feedback over the years. Um, I've met people that have told me that it inspired them to go into this industry. Uh, you know, I was telling you the story earlier about the young man who he Tiger Team is what got him into information security, and then going to DefCon is how he met his wife. Yeah, you know, and they crazy, have a kid man. now, and it's it's like to hear people tell stories like that to me. Um, you know, we we play it off a lot. Um, you know, because being on TV and doing a TV show and a TV show that only did two episodes and then was off the air, yeah. you know, a lot of embarrassment in that uh, in in a lot of ways. But it's it's amazing how many times people have come up to us and been like, you know. You did that TV show, you know, 10, 12 years later, people still remember us from <laughs> yeah. that two episode TV show because it made such an impact and such a difference in, in kind of how people were perceiving and looking at our industry at the time. Yeah. Like, so from that experience, like how did your life change or did it change like from doing that show and then afterwards, like, you know, it's, it's funny cause I, I think back to conversations that Chris Ryan and I had at the time. Um, you know, and, and we, 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 we really did believe that the show was going to go further and, mm. and go longer than it did. Um, you know, unfortunately there were things in the back end that prevented that from, from happening that really we didn't have any influence or control of, but, uh, you know, the, the change wasn't as dramatic as, as, as you would have thought. Mm. I, I, I think that if anything, what it taught me is that when when you try to reach an audience that broad and that wide, it's important that you do so in a way that captures their attention quickly, mm. um, that that reinforces the message that you're trying to deliver, and that it it gives it gave us a platform at the time to be able to get people to quit ignoring the stuff that was so important. You know, who cares if you have a firewall? Who cares if you've got all your vulnerabilities remediated? Who cares if you know you've gone through three or four successful penetration tests and people haven't been able to compromise your network? If I can walk in the front door. And steal somebody's key card and access and, and bust into that business and get access to saves and client information and data, walk out with laptops, whatever it is that, you know, is the target of the red team or the work that we're doing. You know, all that other stuff is, is kind of for naught at that point, right? And that goes mm -hmm. back to what we were talking about before is that I, I think the TV helped people realize that they have to holistically look at security. Just having strong locks on your doors doesn't matter if, if right on that door is a huge pane of glass that a rock can be thrown through, you know? <laughs> yeah. And I, and I think that that's what that show kind of did is it, it bridged a gap where people were still very much looking at hacking and exploitation as, as almost kind of magic. And, and that show kind of showed them that, no, this stuff is actually really, really simple. Just about any, Hey, hell I can do it. Right. You know, anybody can do this stuff with the right mm -hmm. research and the right time and, and the right interest. Um, it, it's, it's really the, the bigger challenge is protecting against it. Now I've, I've heard the argument that, um, a lot of companies shouldn't worry about physical security <laughs> because who's going to try to break it. Like they're not targets of like nation state actors, right? They're that nobody's they going to Yeah. See, <laughs> yeah. And I, and I agree that's, I, I'm on the side that they absolutely should worry about physical right. security, but. Um, there, there's an argument that's coming out now where a lot of like security professionals are saying, no, no, don't go get physical security tests done. It's a waste of money and time. Like no one's actually going to break into your, to your building to steal stuff. And I just, I, I think that if you, if you go do a quick Google search and, and you take a look at kind of the lost data that exists, uh, especially around insider threat, um, I think it's really obvious that physical security has to be something 
that that is being implemented and is something that is closely being watched. Um, you know, when we when we loop back and and we talk about all of these different pieces of exploit code that got stolen from the NSA, all this other information that has shown up from you know unknown sources where they're dumping billions of accounts and data and information. Yeah, it's unreal how much that stuff isn't necessarily being tracked back to, you know, somebody forgot to patch a server or, you know, something was out on the internet that wasn't supposed to be on the internet. A lot of times it's literally because somebody walked in, plugged in a USB key, copied a bunch of data off a system, pulled the USB key out and walked out of the business. Total of like 20 seconds of, of access. Right. Necessary. And, yeah. and, and we're seeing this where this has happened with federal contractors who have top secret security clearances. We're seeing where this has happened with cleaning staff that aren't even working at the businesses that are, mm. you know, taking advantage of the fact that they have physical access to, to, to a business. The evil made attack. Right. Yeah. Right. When, when you, when you start like thinking that, yeah. about, you know, it it's not about you and and i get frustrated when i hear people who are security you know professionals quote unquote sit there and say oh well we don't have to worry about this attack vector because of whatever their excuse is yes you do you have to worry about all attack vectors if it's an attack vector that means you could get attacked because of it <laughs> so you need to do something about it you know right. you don't you don't walk into a boxing ring and be like, oh, well, you know, I'm not going to, you know, I'm not going to put my guard up because my job here today is to punch somebody else. So I'm just <laughs> going to sit here and, you know, walk into the ring and get hit over and over and over and over again. You, you figure out a way to protect yourself and, and defend yourself against those kinds of attacks. Yeah. And especially like uh, when you're talking about insider threats, some people will make the argument that like, oh, well, no one would ever do that. We have, we only hire good people, like ethically yeah. sound, moral people, but um, blackmail is getting real common. Like yeah. there's a lot of that nowadays. Like someone will get malware on their computer and, you know, snip, uh, there's a picture of you and now you have to pay me Bitcoin or I'm going to do whatever, or yep. you have to go to your office and plug in this flash drive, or I'm going to release, uh, you know, photos of you to your contacts. It's yep. a lot. It's happening a lot. Well, it, it, it is. And the, and the thing that blows my mind is how much this stuff gets glossed over in the media. When, when we, when we see the stories, you know, it's always about the server that didn't get patched. It's always about the user that got fished. It's always about that stuff is absolutely prevalent. We're seeing it all the time. It happens every single day, but it doesn't mean that we're not seeing physical attacks against places. I mean, they're, they're, I cannot remember the hospital to save my life right now, but a good example is there was a hospital several years ago where the attacker literally drove up to the hospital's data center, walked into a data center, pulled one you servers out of a live rack wow that was running loaded into the back of his car and drove away wow and and it's it's that kind of a thing where now that person had all this access to all this super sensitive you know patient health information all this data around billing all this other stuff that was going on when all that was wrapped up and finished out they ended up determining and finding out that that was a contractor that had been working with the facility Months and months before, they knew where to go. They knew what servers to pull. They knew what to look for. And all of it was being done and, and financially driven by a competitor. Oh, wow. So, I mean, this is, this is a good example of a That's situation insane. where people, you know, it, it sounds crazy like the movies, but the truth of the matter mm-hmm. is we watch these types of compromises occur all the time. Well, and it's not always about information security, too. Like, you need right. to implement physical security because of a myriad of reasons. Like, what if somebody comes in and tries to shoot the building up? Like, right. the same thing that protects people from coming in mm-hmm. and plugging in flash drives also protects people from coming in and 
doing other things. Yep. In, and in my opinion, it, it, you know, you always heard the triad. I, I think it's more of, of a square. People process technology and data. If I like you that. are working to, to secure the four elements that, that, you know, those are the things that run your business. Those are the things that are most critical to you. When, when you are going about remediating and identifying threat and weakness and you're putting prioritization behind those remediation activities and trying to figure out where you can make a quick change that will make the largest amount of, of reduction of risk in your environment, those are the types of things you have to think about. It's not, oh, well, this server has a critical compromise on it. Who cares if that server doesn't do anything in your business? It's completely isolated away from the rest of the network. It, it couldn't be used as a foothold or whatever. That server should not have the same criticality as, let's say, a payroll system that maybe has a moderate level of vulnerability. Mm-hmm. Where we, contractors are accessing right. it and it's plugged into the corporate network with right. everything else. The example I love to give everyone, and I'm sure you guys are going to giggle when I say it, is lack of SMB signing. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Medium ranked vulnerability that we see present in tons of environments. Yeah. Medium. People, right. When an executive yeah. reads the report and they go through there and they're like, here are the critical findings, here are the medium level findings, here are the low level findings. I'll guarantee you right now, because I sit with them, they're going to read every line of that. But when they look at a medium ranked vulnerability versus those criticals that are showing up on the page, they're going to ignore that medium ranked vulnerability, not knowing that that's going to be the thing that leads to us being able to to poison traffic, to be able to proxy traffic, mm-hmm. capture credentials, be able to get that domain administrative access that we're looking for, simply because of the lack of SMB signing, right? So I, I think that part of our job and and part of the industry as a whole, going back to the holistic discussion, is is that we need to look at the bigger picture versus just the individual finding. And I and I think that it, you know. Going back to all the compliance requirements, it's the same thing. If if you're doing compliance just to check a checkbox, you know, I understand your pain, but compliance looks at maybe 10% of your overall environment of the different types of things that could potentially be compromised or leveraged to, mm-hmm. to take advantage of, of your corporation or gain access to that information that you're so trying so hard to protect. Yeah, PCI like scoping in general is just like it blows me away because it lets the organization determine their own scope and like get away with a lot of stuff. Like you said, 10% of the picture, they can, they can narrow that PCI scope down so far. It's insane. Yeah. Well, and, and it's not just PCI. You see it with a lot of other things out there. Yeah. I, I think the bigger picture is that if, if, if you've got security budget and, and you're the person kind of assigning prioritization around these programs and, and you're trying to, to reduce risk in these environments, the, the way to go with that is, is by creating these programs and these roadmaps that look out three months, you know, six months, a year from now, and that they have clearly defined goals of, of what you're trying to accomplish. When, when you do these programs, they have to be flexible. They can't be rigid because you don't know what kind of critical finding is going to pop up tomorrow that may impact the timeline or, or need immediate need to make sure that, you know, there's resolution occurring. But the, the, the point of what I'm trying to get to and, and say is that we need to, to think about all of the different ways somebody can get in, not just the computers, not just because somebody tailgated in through a door, not mm-hmm. just because somebody clicked a link in a, in a phishing email. If we're doing our job right and we're operating correctly, we should assume that the bad guy's already inside. Yeah. Yeah. That's uh, assumed threats is always like something I advocate for too, because the, the question a lot of times isn't like whether or not you've been breached. It's you have been breached. Like, what can they get away with? Yeah, what have they already walked out of your front door with? Yeah, data loss prevention is important. Um, being able to, like, monitor stuff, super important. But mm-hmm. it requires, like, so much computing power and 
knowing how to filter out noise. It does. And and when you look at these huge, huge mega corporations, some of these corporations, you know, half a million computers on a network, the the biggest challenge they have is just even knowing what's there. Mm. Asset inventory, asset control. It's, it's unreal when I talk to, to some of these largest, you know, some of the largest companies in the world that that's literally where they're struggling is just getting a grasp on what's there. I wanted to ask you some questions about like the hacking community and sure. like, you know, how it's grown over time. And me kind of, I felt like I'm like the, uh, what's it called? The baby boomer or whatever. Baby boomer. Millennial or whatever. Like new kid I, think, on the block. I feel like I'm a millennial in the hacking community where <laughs> I'm coming into the industry and we've got Kuwaitic out. We got Icebreaker and all these tools when y'all didn't even have like exploit DB when you no. were no. out. So it's like somebody coming from like, like, uh, what's that? I'm, I'm me and analogies. Um, coming from like we using like we to, and talking to somebody who's on Atari. Right. <laughs> coming I, from the Atari. Right. I'm gonna generation. say no to that analogy because the Wii is like a ten year old console at this point. I know. Well, I don't know Nintendo's new stuff. I probably should have said like I don't know. I'm Switch. a PC the gamer. Switch. See, Luke knows the Switch. Xbox. I'm whatever. supposed to be the old guy here. Oh Come my on God. now. I, I use consoles i'm a pc master race <laughs> goodness gracious pc master race shout out um so like coming from like defcon 7 you know what six i mean was six was my first yeah okay six seven coming was the first time i worked staff okay what now are now we're at 26 27 something yeah yeah i think so i don't know i need to go years. what are, what were some of the some of the cult the changes in culture that you've seen yeah um because <laughs> that's funny because um like I know that talking to a lot of old schoolers or whatever, there's a big thing with like OPSEC and like yep. being private, not knowing people, letting uh, people know who you are, yep. using handles. And then now we've got bug crowd. And there was even like a big thing on Twitter where there was like a hacking ranking system that came out that was all yeah. the buzz. You, you know what I'm saying? You're yeah. laughing. Yeah, the, yeah, the cloud meter that, yeah. they, that they established. Yeah. So, so like what are some of the changes that you've seen um, over time and like, maybe what are some changes that you could probably live without? Um, you know, I, I think it's, I think it's a good, it's a great question. And, and I'm going to kind of play it on the timeline of when I, when I went to DEF CON six, it was the Plaza in Las Vegas, uh, okay. right before we made the switch over to Alexis park, um, which was a really big deal in, in that scene. Um, when I went to the Plaza, uh, I think I met and maybe got the real name of two people. Wow. Um, at the time, DEF CON, uh, I don't even think we'd broke a thousand people yet. Um, whereas when you compare it now, it's something like 40,000. It's packed. Um, Caesars is totally packed. Yeah. Yeah. But it gives you an idea of, of kind of the crowd. But I, I got a lot of people's handles, you know, and I got a lot of email addresses um, to visit with people. Um, back then, it, it was a rare thing for people to operate or be working in groups or in teams. Uh, Most of the time, the research that was being done, the things that were being posted, things that were being said were being done by an individual. Um, That those days are long dead, right? When, Mm -hmm. when you look at the most powerful companies in the world, um, you know, that, that are doing this work, when you look at, at companies like us that go in to help those companies be more secure, you know, it's always a teaming type environment. It's always about, you know, sharing that knowledge and information. Um, and that's, that's definitely a shift and a change in the way the industry does things or, or, or sees things. Um, I think that it has a lot to do with just growing up again, you know, the, in the, in the infancy of, of this industry, you know, it was a a lot of times it really literally felt like 
you know, what can we get away with and in the way that we do the work and the way that we scope it and the way that we would approach the different challenges and things. Nowadays you have all these compliances and, and all these different requirements. You have certifications, you have, you know, teaching models, you have all these programs that, that people are going through to, to learn stuff that back then was just a scramble to try to get your hands on the information to try to learn it. Um, you know, Logan, you and I were talking earlier about like how, how access to information has changed, right? Yeah. Yeah. Like no starch press and sands and all these blogs that are right, out now. Right. When, when you think about back, back when all this stuff was going on, you know, people would dial into my BBS and they would upload documents, uh, that were like service manuals for telephones, you know, pay phones and stuff like this. Um, we didn't have the internet yet. People would, would share information through these by dropping these different docs into to different places and people would download them and read them. And it was, it was truly like getting a hold of, of a banned book or something that hadn't been in publication or print for hundreds of years in the way that it made you feel, you know, it was special. Um, nowadays, you know, it's anyone can get a hold of exploit code. Mm-hmm. Anyone can, can write a buffer overflow, you know, anyone can can go out and, and obtain the knowledge and information to be able to do this type of stuff. Yeah. It's crazy how much you can find just by Googling, like how to hack. Yep. Like back then that was like, or back then being, you know, just like five to 10 years ago, it's hard to find that type of stuff. But yeah. now it's like pen testing has become so mainstream. Yeah. And, and super. And, you know, easy. we were talking about the change that occurred back in days like that. We would meet, you know, I would meet a friend or, or somebody that, that knew how to do basic, basic exploit development. And, and again, you know, th- that person was put on a pedestal that was unbelievable because it was one of those things that, you know, the knowledge just wasn't out there. Um, I will never forget, you know, when, when you look at things like smashing the stack for fun and profit, when that came out, you know, two months later, all of a sudden you see this huge rush of all these people start pushing out and publishing and, and talking about how they're doing these stack overflows and how they're you know, doing arbitrary code execution and, and running this stuff as, as an administrative user because everything was admin back then. And, and I think that when, when you look at the change, you know, that, that paper for me was a huge shift in, in what I saw coming out of the industry and what people did with that knowledge and information. Fast forward a couple of years later, and you start looking at the work that like HD Moore did uh, around creating like Metasploit and, and putting that tool set together. You know, now it's commonplace where one of my favorite things to do to demonstrate ease of exploitation is that I, you know, we'll go perform a test or we'll go do a hack and we can sit down and, and pull a non-technical user in, you know, someone who's janitorial staff or, or clerical staff, and we'll sit them down at a computer and literally step them through the process of using Metasploit to compromise, you know, a, a software weakness or vulnerability that's on a host out there. Showing someone how to do like MS-1710, like right. run Eternal Blue through Metasploit. Oh, my God. Yeah. yeah. I've shown that before as a demo for like how point and clickable stuff is. Exactly. Yeah. And and it makes you realize that, you know, what what people once worshipped and, and thought was was the coolest of the coolest of the neatest thing now it's become very, very commonplace. And I, and I think you're going to see that as the industry continues to, to change. When, when I look forward 5, 10, 20 years, you know, automation, machine learning, um, neural distributed networking, these are the types of things that are now being used to, to really drive and, and to be a force multiplier in this industry. Um, you know, the days of having a single individual sit down and run a vulnerability scan and then having them spend hours of time crunching through testing SSL certificates and trying to validate all these different findings and weaknesses and, you know, just trying to get a foothold. 
um, that is becoming trivial at this point uh, with the tools and the knowledge and the information that's available out there. It, it's more about how that impacts your company. How does it introduce risk and what does that risk mean to your environment? Less about the fact of, oh, well, we forgot to patch this one computer and now it could be hacked. Right. Like instead of, oh, we found 1710, I'm just going to use that again, like on a computer. That's a critical, that's super important. Not always. Like what if 1710 is on this isolate like you said before like an isolated box that doesn't do anything you know it doesn't have any da creds in memory you're not able to go dump and pivot into other stuff like who cares if you take over one unused box yep but but in the same sense we're we're seeing a change now too uh you know virtualization cloud deployed environments there there's a huge push and a huge move right now um, you know, people are, are not doing so much work on prim at this point, uh, you know, as far as where the data is resting and, and being processed. Um, you know, we're seeing a lot of people move to the cloud. Yeah. And it's interesting because, you know, everybody's quick to adopt it, but you've got to keep those same basic rules that you've always known in check for when you're deploying the crowd. You know, what types of things are going to be visible? What services do I want to be out there on the Internet? It's the same work and the same type of stuff that we've been going after. It's it's just in a different you know a different look now or a different feel now. Yeah, uh, I remember when S three started really really catching on just recently. Um, there were a lot of people like the open S three buckets thing. Like everybody was putting their stuff in S three buckets. Nobody knew how they worked. Yep. So everybody was checking the box that says like, oh yeah, make it you know publicly readable. Of course, I want to be able to read it over the internet. And they didn't understand that that meant <laughs> literally anybody can go to this link and read it. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah. if your S three buckets named company name slash aws dot amazon.com or whatever you're, you're yep. might be found out <laughs> well and and we've seen a huge push people are adopting new technologies kubernetes docker a lot of these types of of new solutions are people are quick to adopt them they want to embrace this they see that there's a change and a shift occurring in the industry to go that route problem is once again if you don't understand the way that it works in the back end you may be introducing something to your environment that decreases security not not improves it um, you know, our, I, I think it was Brad, uh, one of our, our guys here on the team, um, gave a presentation at Hexacon that was demonstrating <laughs> how to escape Docker con- containers to, to take over mm. the hosting system. Yeah. Amazing research, right? Very cool. Awesome work. Some of the people out there look at it and they go, well, you know, who cares? You're overtaking a computer that you already own. But the, the bigger thing to take away from it is, is the fact that they're exploiting a service and, and getting to places in the machine and places to the location that, you know, you're not supposed to be able to see or do. Right. So like maybe in that one implementation, he wasn't able to do anything super right. interesting. But think about the, the concept itself. Like how could that be applied other places? That was my like, exact argument. It's like, OK, yeah. well, that's that's cool if I'm running that machine. What if somebody else is running that machine and I do that exploit? Yeah, now all like, of a sudden I see all of your instances across all of your deployments. Yeah, like what if you're a contractor that has access provisioned and you're one of 50 contractors? Yeah, so, yeah exactly. Yeah, it's it's powerful. And I and I I'm I'm all about the adoption of technology. It's it's you know, we're just going to keep doing it quicker and faster. Um, but I do think it's important once again to to look at that that quadrant and and really understand you know how does this affect my people my process my technology the data that we're responsible for storing and protecting and and what does that mean you know if we make this shift in the change it's, it's part of the reason I'm proud to work where I do is that one of the big things we do with coal fire is we advise people in how to do that right and how to do that safely um, you know when you look at our work around FedRAMP for instance we've done more FedRAMP exponentially than any other company. 
And and part of that is is because we we've been doing it since the start, so we understand what those environments need to look like, what needs to be in play, what kind of controls and 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 security uh, features are are protecting that data and information, and and more specifically, how people are deploying into that environment and using that environment once it's once it's been spun up. For so for somebody who's been you know doing stuff from like DefCon six and how does one and I'll, I'll say this because I feel like there's a big divide again between the millennials and the hacking community versus the OGs, as I'll label it. Um, how does someone who's just coming into the industry assimilate into your type of community? And you were talking about like how you got invited to some group or, you know, IRC yeah. with all these people, you know, like how does someone who just came into the industry even find a path? into a circle like yours i i think that attending or, conferences and industry events are powerful mm -hmm. um i think it's a way where you have an opportunity to come face to face with just about anybody that you could imagine or, or want to meet in this industry um and i i think that people try to they they still get stuck in you know the the og rock star millennial you know, teaming mentality. The The truth of the matter is, is that any of these conferences, DEF CON, Black Hat, you know, um, besides any, any of these events that are going on, walk up to somebody, you know, show them that you're interested, show them that you care, show them that you even know who they are. Right. And, and ask them out for a beer or ask them out to, to dinner or lunch. You'd be, you'd be amazed at all it really takes is, is conversation. They're a human just like you. I think that one of the biggest mistakes that I, I see people do is the idolization of of some of these of some of these older crowds or or ways of thinking. You know, there there's still a bit of mentality where people you know think that hackers somebody sitting in their mom's basement with a hoodie on, you know, drinking Jolt Cola and <laughs> and pound away till the the wee hours of the night, and and that world's long dead. I, I think that at this point the industry is is very open to communication and discussion and teaming and partnering. And I've never met anyone that that is worth their weight or deserves to be in this industry that isn't willing to to help others, especially people that are coming into the industry fresh and new. Yeah. Cause it, it always seemed like like you know how you said there's a bunch of people at DEF CON today. Yep. And it it seems like for new people that um, if someone knew where to go to that, they would be kind of on the commercial side. And yeah. then there's this little dark circle <laughs> of all the cool elite hackers, you know, from who's been doing this, you know, that you will never somebody new would never see, you know, or never be invited to. I, 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 I think saying? that really it's it's getting out there. <laughs> OK, you know, I, I don't know anybody in that dark circle, as you put it, that, that isn't approachable and, okay. and that isn't somebody that would be willing to speak to somebody new in the industry. Um, you know, I, I think it's important to, to be social when, when I talk to students that are graduating college and, and asking me, you know, kind of mm -hmm. how to take those next steps. Um, you know, I, I talk about the, the resume fodder, right? Like you can go apply to a hundred companies and, and maybe get a call back from one, right. With, with, by just throwing your resume out there. I don't care how good it is or what's on it. It's, that's just kind of the stats. Mm -hmm. If you know one person inside of that company you're pretty much guaranteed an interview, mm -hmm. right? It's the same kind of thing in the hacking culture. If, if you are completely on the outside edge and, and you've never done this stuff before and you don't know anybody in the industry and you're wanting to team and you're wanting to network and you're wanting to meet people and build out, 
go to the industry events, go to these conferences, shake people's hands, bring business cards, bring a copy of your resume, be proud of what you don't know. Mm. The number one thing I tell people, embrace like the fact that you don't know shit. It, it's, it's my favorite thing to tell people. I'll have people come up to me and they'll start explaining something to me that's a new security find or some research they're doing. My favorite thing to do is just like, I don't know anything about that. Tell me everything you know. And that person's going to speak with passion. Person's going to speak with knowledge. Mm-hmm. The person's going to speak with, you know, the, the forethought of, 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 you know, this is an opportunity to be able to teach and educate and train somebody that, you know, they're talking to you for a reason in the first place. So, so use that as an opportunity to, to really learn from them about something new and cool. Yeah. Oh my God. Like uh, being able to sit and talk to like Bryce and Victor about some of the stuff that they're working on, like on the last episode, getting to talk about the, uh, the R and D stuff, like the AMT thing. Oh my God. I don't know anything about it, but you know, sitting there, like getting the opportunity to sit and listen to Vic ramble. He like, I love listening to it because you learn so much. Yeah. He, he is a perfect example. When I first met him, I think he was 18 or 19 years old. Crazy. Uh, we were in Norway together. We'd been asked to go over and speak at a conference called HackCon. And there was a team of us, uh, and an amazing team of people. I mean, Mouse, Stragorn, Deviant Olam, myself, um, the Prez, you know, Victor, Lost. Like, this is, this is like a, a team, just a remarkable team to, to be part of. And we went over there, and Victor was kind of like the, the <laughs> unknown at the time because he was a student at UAT. Uh, had been studying under Lost. Uh, Lost was one of his professors. And he came oh, wow. over, and, and by the end of the week, in, in Norway, it was pretty obvious or obvious to everyone and very evident that Victor was one of the smartest people that was there. <laughs> no questions asked. Like the, the work that he was doing, the, the research that he presented, the, the things that he helped with, with the side projects we were doing when we were over there. Um, it, it was just amazing. I was, I was so happy when he came and joined us at Coal Fire. And, it, and it's a good example of just some of the level of talent that we do have here remarkable the people that we get to come work with us it's funny because i do know that he does hack in the basement with a hoodie into the wee hours of the night so i just he literally does do that he's as og as they come (laughs) there's there's absolutely nothing wrong with that i'm just it's it's just interesting that 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 is the image that comes to mind when people think about what it is that we do and how we do it yeah no, I, I, you know, it's full fire is amazing. We, I've worked with a lot of companies, um, you know, big, big, big name companies. Yeah, I worked at British telecommunications. I worked at Air electronics, you know, we did all the stuff that, that led to tiger team and, you know, Chris spun off and created Loris and, and him and Eric have, have created an amazing company over there doing the, the boutique security work that they do. Um, but I, I think that one of the things that, that is interesting is when you kind of rewind it and kind of look back, um, we're lucky. In a lot of mm-hmm. in a lot of places, it was knowing the right people or having the right conversation at the right time, and and the one thing that I will attribute to our success in, in that arena and the things that led to the TV show was that we were approachable. We mm-hmm. were able to communicate. We were, we were able to talk to people. We weren't worried about our opsec. I'm I am the worst person in the world to talk to about opsec because even though I sit here and teach it and mm-hmm. and live and die for it and grew up in a family where that's something super important. It, it was amazing to me how by embracing the exact opposite, I found a lot of freedom by, by being truly an open book with a lot of the work that I was doing and who I was and the things that I do that, that made it a lot easier. Um, because then all of a sudden when anybody would want to drop my docs, they'd realized I'd already dropped them. Right. <laughs> so it's kind of the backwards look at it, but, yeah. but in, in the same sense, I, 
you know, I have mad respect for, for the, the way that the industry has changed, the way things have shifted, the, the maturity that has, has come out of the industry. You know, you asked me a question earlier about kind of the honor among thieves mm-hmm. in, in the hacking scene. I think it's very much alive. Um, and, and I think that it's something where you don't watch people making choices or actions that are, are illegal or potentially leading to, you know, a, a compromise inside of an environment or something like that. But there, there is still kind of that mentality that you don't necessarily tattle somebody else, mm-hmm. that you don't, you know, yes. throw what, somebody under what a What are the rules? <laughs> Please tell me. I'm right. I'm taking notes. The, there are no rules nowadays. Nowadays, it's, it's, this is, you know, this is business. This what are is, the unwritten rules? There's always uh, rules. Back in the day, um, you know, going back to what you're saying, the OG years, <laughs> you know, you didn't hack for money. Okay. Uh, it, it, that was definitely a change is the security industry matured. So no matured. bug bounty. Right. There was no bug bounty back then. There was, there was a whole lot of, if you go and you hack this company and you tell this company you hacked them, you'd better expect a visit from the FBI. Um, so that, that's a major change, right? Like companies are embracing research and embracing disclosure and, and, and doing it right. You know, they're not just necessarily blasting and publishing things out there. There's coordinated disclosure. There's good organizations kind of pushing and leading towards that. We do that at Coal Fire. You know, obviously the Calvary has a, a big program behind that. Um, I, I think that that's a big change. I think that one of the other uh, rules that is something that you, you don't see anymore is going right back to what you were saying about the OPSEC. It used to be, you never told anybody who you were. You never told anybody what you were working on. You never, you know, and nowadays it's, it, I, you watch people get busted on a, on a world scale and they literally become celebrity. Yeah. Right. Uh, what's the guy's name? Mitnick? Kevin, Kevin Mitnick, Mitnick yeah. yeah. Kevin, yeah. Kevin, Kevin is, is a good first example of, of that type of thing happening. I, I, you know, I'd go even further. And I'd say that Kevin hacking and or getting busted wasn't what, what made that a big deal. I think the fact that Kevin was held for so long without trial mm. um, was really one of the things that, that boiled that up and made that bigger. Um, I, I was more referencing on some of the hacks that we saw, you know, when, when you started seeing some of these anonymous operations getting busted up uh, I forgot and, and people sick were, and those guys right, yeah. and, and stuff was becoming public. All of a sudden it was like, you know, you're, you're watching someone that 10 years ago would have been sitting in a jail cell. All of a sudden they're sitting on, you know, national media, national news talking about what it is that they did and how they did it. Yeah. Unlike the guy that made the Mirai botnet or whatever, the Krebs posted this big article that got picked up. That was like national news. Yep. So. Yep. And, and it's, it's interesting because I think it has changed how the industry looks at that type of thing. I also think it's part of the reason that it, the, the whole security rock star being dead is, is something that's a good thing. You know, you talk about changes that have occurred that are, are for the good and for the, the bad. I think that the death of the security rock star is, is a very positive thing because I think that, you know, we obviously all do function better as a team. There, there are always going to be individuals that shine in one area or another. But if, if we're operating and functioning as a team, as an organization, as a unit, you're, you're going to get a lot more than trying to do that alone. Um, I, I think a, a negative change that I have seen in the industry, if you want to pick on something, has been the embracing and, and leaning on of insurance. Yeah, we we see we see companies that get compromised nowadays and they act as if it's nothing um, because it's oh, well, it's an insurance claim. We're going to pay for, you know, data protection for the next two years for these hundred thousand people that just had their lives uprooted because of, you know, a compromise that occurred because we didn't do something right. And I think there's a complacency that that some of the industry is is 
latching onto um, around insurance and the ability to say, well, you know, we've done our due diligence. We've, we've met these specific low bars that have been set by a, a compliance requirement in whatever our industry is. The whole Equifax thing comes to mind immediately about that. Like they've, you know, did their trial. They said, look, we, we made the bare minimum effort to protect this stuff, so we can't be held liable. Well, and, and I think that right now you're seeing a really positive response from them, right? Like they're, they're, they're working really hard to, to make sure that they understand and clean up processes and procedures and that they get on top of this stuff so that something like this never, ever happens again. Um, the, the, the places that I get more concerned about are places that we watch get hacked time and time yeah. and time again, sometimes even through the same vectors, right? Yeah. Where, you know, it, you'll watch a company get compromised and, and you'll go in and you'll talk to them and it's like, listen, this is, this is the information that's been pulled out of here. This is what's lost. This is the impact of this attack. You know, here are all these things that we're worried about that, that, you know, you need to take care of. And, and the response will be, yeah, we'll add it to our roadmap. And, you know, we've got insurance against cyber attack and it's, you know, it's never, this is not the time to be complacent right now is the time to realize that we are all fighting in a cyber war that has been going on for over 20 years and that the world is just now starting to get an idea that it's even happening. Yeah, a lot of organizations have that response of like, oh, well, I'll go update that Excel document that has our list of risks. Right. Like, no, you need to fix this. Right, exactly. <laughs> the point of sale malware that was going on a few years back, like every major fast food chain was getting hit with the same point of sale malware. You get three in and it's like maybe the fourth company should have done their due diligence to go. Maybe we're, we're using the same point of sale system. Maybe we should fix it. Or even more so, maybe the point of sale system that was being compromised, that company should take responsibility. Yeah. And should be pushing out some kind of a fix or a patch to all those customers that are being impacted and affected by the risk. The further up the supply chain you go, like the exactly. <laughs> the more it mitigates. Make it. a change, right? Yeah. What what can we do today that takes, you know, when when I look at it, it's 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 an effort reward exercise, right? What effort can we put in that reduces the greatest amount of risk? What what is it that we can do today? that makes the biggest change for the users, the data and the people and the things that need to be protected on that environment tomorrow. If, if we think like that from a security leadership standpoint, you know, if we get our executives and our boards and our C-levels out there to, to really embrace that type of thinking, it, it changes the game. Because now we, we start focusing more on the impact of risk versus the individual vulnerability or weakness. I was going to ask another question. Oh, yeah, fire away, man. Yeah. <laughs> um, what is, what's like one of the biggest uh, mistakes that you've seen someone make in the hacking community, um, like against the hacking community per se? Like maybe, maybe not like a somebody snitching on somebody, but like somebody's done something that's like just, I don't know, bad, just to have an example of. It's hard because if, if, if you give specific examples, yeah, without you throw people under the bus. Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and there are some things that, I mean, I, I can think of examples where I've watched people in the industry take advantage of each other and others for financial gain. Mm, um, like or, stealing research type thing? Stuff like that and, and or taking advantage of, of relationships or access or other types of things like that. And, and in those situations, I, th I think that that's, that's pretty weak. You know, that's a really sad way to go at it. Mm -hmm. um, what do you mean by taking, taking advantage of a relationship? Like um, to get a job or? Uh... No, no. More specifically, like if let's play, let's play out a game and, and let's say like, you know, company A 
hires company B um, to come in and and do work, right? To mm-hmm. do pen testing or to do whatever. Um, I, I've watched people who have taken advantage of information or data that wouldn't be relevant or available to them um, in the scope of the work effort that they're doing to, to, to try to get a hand up. Um, I've watched people steal research from each other mm. uh, and publish it. I, I mean, I, I think it's the greatest form of flattery. I'll give you a good example. <laughs> uh, Terrence Garreau and I, uh, Tuna, as he's better known, we did an amazing speech about hacking people through QR codes. And we made individual serialized little QR codes that we handed out at, at DEF CON. And then people spent the following year putting them all over the world. And every time that somebody would click on, on one of those QR codes and they'd scan the QR code, we would capture information about their browser, the software release information, all the stuff that's already publicly being pushed out and, and you know, just blasted out there from your devices. Mm. But we would harvest that information and any geographic information that we could to, to create this beautiful map and demonstrate that, you know, 50% at the time, 50% of, of all of the Apple devices that clicked were vulnerable, you know, two thirds at the time of Android devices were able to be compromised through these various exploits that were public at the time. Um, you know, and, and we got some one-off data with the, the Blackberries and all of this other type of stuff too. But we, we presented this at a Sky Talk at DEF CON. And as you guys well know, you know, we don't record Sky Talks. That was part of the reason when I founded Sky Talks, part of the thing that I was doing was trying to protect the speaker and the research so that they didn't have to feel like they had to bite their lip or be careful about what they said. We wanted it to, to be able to be a platform for people to get up there and push that information out. Terrence and I gave that speech at DEF CON. Uh, it would have been at the Riviera, so many, many years ago. And it was interesting because about a year later, we saw a Russian researcher who literally, word for word, some of the stuff out of our speech, wow. clear down to even having slides that looked like our slides, <laughs> uh, published the same work effort that we had um, talking about the different vulnerabilities, the different weaknesses, the different issues that we'd addressed. Um, at the time, I had a bunch of people in the industry that were like, oh, you know, what are you guys going to go do after this? And it was like, I, I think it's wonderful. I went from a, from a platform that wasn't being recorded on purpose, mm. uh, telling a whole bunch of people in the industry that wanted to come listen what the problem was. And, and a year later, it became commonplace to where somebody was publishing that research and it was being listened to at a, at a global level. I find that flattering. A lot of other researchers would have, would have been very offended by that. Mm. I think the, the ugliest thing I've seen happen in this industry are people who are politically um one way or another uh kind of driven to 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 control uh you know different groups or businesses or input or or types of things Uh, a good example um that i could give is i i watched a group of, of very very brilliant people who came together to form an amazing company that was doing amazing things i watched it kind of implode on itself um simply because people couldn't get out of the way of their own egos, right? But when, when you talk about mistakes mm. and, and things that people are doing that are wrong against each other or, or uglier sides of, of this industry, I think that most of the time that, that that's driven by ego. Mm-hmm. And I think that if we can start focusing on what's bigger and, and more important, which is, you know, again, risk reduction and protection of, of the things that matter, mm. That stuff has to take a back seat. That stuff has to kind of go away. Okay. Yeah. I've heard that word ego a lot in this industry. And that seems to be like one of the biggest, um, like, uh, what's that? Like traps for people. It is. 
You, once you, you start doing really, cool stuff and like putting yeah, cool yeah. stuff out there, once you start getting like compliments, it's hard to sort yeah. of like take becomes a step the back. look what I can do game, you know, where it's yeah. all about you know what what can you do that's special or better. You know, I I had a company that I interviewed for you know years ago, and and their whole big thing was was how was I a plus one? Mm. What was the one thing that I could do that nobody else at their company could do? Now, while I appreciate that mentality and that thinking. It, it breeds a competitive environment and and mentality that I think kind of fights against Toxic. sharing. Yeah, exactly. It yeah. share. You know, if if I figure out how to hack something, I want to come in the office and tell every single person about it because I'm proud of what I did and, and because it, we can use it and it can make a difference and it can help people. Mm-hmm. When it becomes something of oh, I did this hack and you know now I'm going to tuck it away in my back pocket yeah. or I'm going to talk <laughs> to the media about it, but I'm not going to publish any of the information or data and you mm-hmm. know. Like now you're kind of defeating the purpose of, of research and education and you're starting to move more towards that grandstanding and ego that we're trying to move away from. One of my least favorite things to, to see happen is watching a brilliant researcher destroy their own project and their own research by not releasing it. And it's, it happens a lot in this industry oh, wow. where, you know, I'll, I'll take the financial route instead. I'll, I'll do the bug bounty. I'll do the, the zero day disclosure of the vulnerability or the weakness. And, and they're motivated by the money, which is a good motivator. And I think it's important that we do bug bounties. I think it's important that we have these programs. I, I think that they have very much moved our industry in a positive direction in, in how companies deal and handle with these types of things. But I also question sometimes, you know, is it costing us or, or compromising potential data or research that would occur? You know, if I know that I'm a step or two away from a bug bounty that's going to potentially pay me $100,000 because I have, I have figured out this vulnerability or this weakness or I'm close to it. I may not be so inclined to to reach out and to work with somebody to to have to share or split those profits or that credit with it, right? That's ego. Mm. Going right back to what we were talking about. That's greed and ego. Mm. When when we start instead going, you know, I I can't get this figured out. Why don't I reach out and, you know, call my three smartest friends to come over and hang out? You know, we drink a couple of beers, have some pizza and spend 12 hours grinding on this at the end of that if the work product is something that that makes the world a better place, then now it's not so much about the money. Now it's not so much about getting that bug bounty. Now it's now it's more about the teaming and making a difference and making a change. And I I think that bug bounties would do right by themselves by trying to focus on on that type of an effort mm-hmm. where we're building up and showing how people are making a difference versus just handing out cash. And I th- I think that that may be the next kind of step that's coming down the road. Mm-hmm. You know, everybody wants money. We all do. It makes a big difference. It's absolutely motivator. It, it helps a researcher decide that they want to spend time on something that they otherwise may not. Um, but I, I think the next phase of what we're going to see come out of that type of mentality is, is benefiting, you know, um, the, the world as a whole and making a change for the better versus it being, I'm trying to throw some money in my pocket. I think that's one of my biggest complaints about bug bounties, like as they're laid out right now, is that you can set up a bug bounty and everything is 100% private. Like the scope of the bug bounty is private. The details of the bugs that were uh, found. Mm-hmm. Uh, how much it was paid out, like it can all be completely confidential. And I think yep. for bug bounties to be truly effective, like once you're paid out and once the be- like the bug is fixed, they need to be able to publish that stuff. Yep. Because um, like one comes to mind, there was some big bug in, I don't know if it was a bug in OAuth itself or like how it was being implemented across several sites, but there was a big OAuth thing with like Facebook and someone found it and reported it and got paid and never disclosed it. And then the same thing happened with like Twitter and Gmail and all these other things that were using OAuth. Um, and if someone would have just publicly disclosed it in the first place, 
Like think of all the people's accounts that could have potentially been saved exactly. because they couldn't have been taken over. Exactly. So it's, you know, I, 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 I'm, we're starting to see organizations do cooler stuff. I I've seen a couple organizations. We we've participated in it a couple times where they'll go, you know, here's our brand new medical device or whatever. And, and we're going to open this up and they'll hire, you know, three to five different consultancies to come in and, and really beat it up. And then they'll do all their remediation effort and then they'll open it up to the public and they'll be like, you know, come at me, bro. Essentially, you know, <laughs> we're unhackable. Yeah. Right. Right. And, and I, I think that there's, there's, there's a lot of intelligence in that. I think that paying out a bug bounty in those situations is, is brilliant because it's a way to, to again, motivate people and to make sure that that information is, is being used for good, not bad. But you know, it, I, I think the, the important part about it is if, if you're doing the research, you know, you got to pay the bills. Money's important. I get that, but you should make sure also you need to ask yourself is the research that I'm doing, making the world a better place, mm. you know? easy to take money sometimes because somebody is paying you to privatize or keep an exploit from from being public but then you have to ask yourself why are they doing that yeah what's like, their motivator and what are they going to use it for i feel like that's the gold that i was looking for because like this new generation of hackers we don't know the proper mentality to have when we're doing this we see the bug bounty page we see the clients we see how much you get paid if you find the exploit yep. and then you hit go and then you go Yep. But I think you explaining the proper mentality of, you know, keeping the making the world a better place, you know, that that helps me personally and um, helps shed light on like what you should be thinking while you're doing that. So. Yeah. And I, I mean, trust me, I've got a bunch of friends that are going to be listening to this that are going to make fun of me and be like, <laughs> it's all about the money. But, but I mean, really, truly, when you go to bed at night, do you do you want to think that your exploit code was just used to hack some country on the other side of the world? Mm. Or do you want to know that the disclosure of what you found that led to the research that, you know, led to you developing that exploit code, that that's now public and has been used to protect tens of millions, potentially billions of people from a vulnerability or weakness that could have been, you know, could have been leveraged against them. It's like, I, there's Mm. a trade-off there, you know, it's like money, money's great and all, but I want to be able to sleep at night. Yeah. Yeah. Like I, I think about um, like core impact a lot, like core impact has exploits that are not public. Correct. Like and they're you, amazing. They're really well written, really awesome. It's a great tool. Yeah. But like, I just, I feel like there has to be some sort of like weight on the people that are maintaining core impact. I don't know who owns it or maintains it, but like if you were to make those <laughs> exploits public, maybe people would be more inclined to fix them. Because when we report something to a client right now, it's like, oh yeah, yeah, there's an exploit for that, but nobody has it. And they yeah. might, they might be more inclined to go, oh, well, I don't need to fix it because nobody's going to actually be able That's, to hack me. That is a very valid point. You're, you're right. When it says that there's a publicly available exploit in Metasploit, I think that people scramble a hell of a lot quicker than they do when they see yeah, that it's in true. a in a commercial exploit package. Something you have to pay thousands of dollars for. Yeah, like ten thousand or something for Core Impact. It's a lot more than that. Yeah, it's insane. Uh, I think the last time that I had a license, and this is a long, long, long time ago, it was, it's that time is <laughs> about seven. Oh my wow. God. Wow. Or like a consulting license. Yeah, but, uh, man. That's wild. Yeah, and then Lord knows where the price point is nowadays. And and here's the point. It, it, towards towards their effort, the tool's amazing. Yeah. The reporting in the tool is absolutely second to none. I've never and got to use that. It's it's solid. And 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 the exploits are really solid. Like it's it's the kind of thing that when I was first playing with it, you know, um, we were doing work with the government and I was blown away that, you know, there were exploits that they had in there that I could do that when you looked at any other public exploit resource, 
you know, if you ran the exploit, it, it'd bring down the service. It'd crash the, the computer. There was, there was no way to, to return back, you know, or, or to restore the state or the process of, of that you just compromised. Uh, one of the things that Core was really doing and profiting upon was the fact that they were making stable exploits. Things that weren't going to nationally, you know, intentionally or, or, or bring down that, that server, or that system that you were targeting. I, I, I think that when you started seeing some of the work that ZDI, Zero Knowledge, some of the stuff with the, you know, um, zero day disclosure type programs that were out there, I think they started taking steps in the right direction with this stuff where it was, you know, yeah, we can, we can make this stuff private. Yes, we can make it available for bid or for sale. You know, people can, can go to these sites and, and bid on and buy exploits and this kind of thing. Um, I, I dug that research, uh, but I, I am a big supporter of open source and, and giving your knowledge and what you have out there to the community. I, I think that if, if you found a weakness or a compromise and, and it's something that's out there that could potentially be used for bad, I think that there's a bit of an ethical thing in, in making sure that you try to do what you can through your disclosure process to make sure that you know the best of the best happens with, with it. What's your uh, thoughts on like certifications? We talked about that a little mm-hmm. bit ago, but uh, like, what's your thoughts on like, um, like the importance of them in the hacking industry yep. or whatever? And so I got to, I got to eat my own words. Cause five years ago on an interview like this, I, I told somebody that they didn't mean shit. Um, mm-hmm. And, and I'll tell you now that that's the wrong information advice to be giving people. There, there are really amazing certs out there. Um, I, I think that there are organizations that are, are creating programs and training and, and testing people in ways that, that make sure that, yeah, they do understand the basics. Yes, they can target and, and exploit the low-hanging fruit. Yes, they can put together a basic over, you know, buffer overflow. They, they understand the process of what's going on there. Um, I, I really like offensive security. Mm-hmm. I, think, I think the programs that they put out there, the work effort that they do, the team that's behind all of that, uh, amazing, amazing people, and mm-hmm. and just top a notch, right? OCSP, OCSE. These are these are OSCP, OSCE. Yeah, what did I say? <laughs> OCSP. See, that's that's what happens when you're <laughs> dyslexic. You flip things around. But exactly. See, OSCP, OSCE. There we yeah, go. Yeah. I gotta hop in and and play devil's advocate, uh, the naysayer here. I honestly, I'm kind of like starting to get disappointed by offensive security like the OSCP, don't hate on don't hate on offensive well, security because i have I'm, my I'm OSCP, and when i got it i really liked it like okay. it taught me a lot yep. and this was just like a couple years ago so i don't know and i'm sort of just repeating what i've heard from other people i've heard from other people that uh the <laughs> web app class that they have is not that great awe uh, no, that's the advanced Windows one. No, no, awe is uh their advanced web app one. Uh, oh, what's the AWE is advanced windows exploitation. See, I've heard that one's not the greatest and I've heard the OSCE is not the greatest. And I've heard their web app one is mostly just like Java, like PHP code review. And like I've working. heard all the opposite. They, I don't know. Maybe I, I wish that they <laughs> so would this just, is, this is the, the angel and the devil, right? <laughs> yeah. The, the two sides of I got to play it. <laughs> you know, I, I guess the way I'll look at it is that back in the day, having an MCSE plus I was huge and then having, you know, uh, getting your CISSP was like the big thing, right? In the industry. I, I think that for at least the technical side, like the people who are doing technical testing, things like the offensive, uh, certification program, um, crest is another good example of a, of a certifying body out there that has a pretty cool program. 
make sure that people understand the, the basics of, of what they're doing and how they're doing it. Um, I, I think that stuff is important. And I'll, I'll tell you also, if, if you're new to the industry, you know, as you put it, the, uh, a millennial in the industry, <laughs> right? If, if you're going to, to try to get in and do work, certifications go a long way of getting you past that recruiter's desk, right? Like you can, you can be the best, best hacker in the world. You can sit at home all day long and have your lab set up and be doing, you know, zero days all day long and publishing and putting your information out there. But when a recruiter looks at that, they don't know who you are. They don't know what that means. They, they don't have a clue why they should even care about your GitHub or the research or anything else that you're doing. Well, and there's like those not in our industry, right? Right. And then there's like the automated HR filters too, right. that like mm. scan for certain phrases. Exactly. Yeah, so, yeah. so getting your certs, getting your degree, going, going that educational route is a really good way to make sure that you get that foot in the door, at least have that opportunity to, to interview and to be able to demonstrate your knowledge and, and the type of stuff, your passion and, and what's important to you. And, and I feel like that's another key piece to the whole OPSEC thing that we were talking about before is now people that want jobs, uh, you got to set up like your own website, like you got to have your resume, put it out there. You got to have these yeah, certs, LinkedIn. Link, yeah, mm-hmm. you got to have yeah. all this stuff just to get the job, mm-hmm. you know, and it's impossible to keep that, um, that OPSEC mindset of the, you know, days of old or whatever and get a job in this industry today. Yeah, like I said, those, those days are long gone. If if you want to, you want to come work with us, I, we, you know, we joke about all the time about, you know, the gauntlet or the Fleeman as it's now called, Yeah. (laughs) but, but the truth of the matter without giving away any of our trade secrets here is that if you, if you come to interview at coal fire, you know, uh, it was talked about at this last go, right? hundred, hundred for one app for one position that comes open. We'll receive a thousand resumes. What? We may have a hundred people that. that have the qualifications and the level on the resume to to be able to go through the process. And of the hundred that looked at, there's maybe one or two that actually get the first initial phone call, much less get to go through the process, right? Yeah, the Fleeman's like the final gauntlet. Right. If you're at the Fleeman, you're ready to go. What's like, the Fleeman? I don't even that's know. That's the technical Fleeman. scenarios. The challenges. Yeah. Oh, like okay. when we're when we're bringing somebody in, you've you've talked to HR, you've okay. talked to the the to our vp you've talked to the directors you've talked to all the different people and you've done well you know we understand that you're gonna be a fit culturally that you've got the right mission in mind that all that stuff is there when when you get to the fleeman you know and fleeman's named after one of our our amazing directors in delivery you know richard fleeman (laughs) he put together this challenge that it it really runs somebody through the paces of of what they would do on a day to day you know assessment working here. It does a really good job covering like the full breadth of stuff that you might run into. Yeah, and and the thing that'll that blows my mind is we'll we'll get people that'll come in and they'll do the challenge and and they'll come to us and they're like, well, yeah, I did the challenge, I did it for five days, you know, I I got this far, I did this, I was able to get this flag, but I I, I couldn't get you know DA access or whatever it is that that they're being challenged by, and they'll they'll seem disappointed like we're not going to give them a chance. The truth of the matter is if you've gotten to the point where, where you're even getting that challenge, mm-hmm. we believe in you from mm-hmm. a cultural standpoint. We believe in your ability to communicate. We believe that, that you are going to be a good match in, in, in our, in our company, with our company values and the company mission. So at, at that point, what we're really looking for is, is somebody that has the ability to conduct the work and teach us and demonstrate through their presentation that they understand and and know what they're doing and even better can can educate someone who's sitting on that other side of the table like an executive who mm-hmm. doesn't know this stuff 
and can explain it in a way that makes it to where they connect to the risk of, of why it's important that this hack occurred in the first place. So I, I, I think that, you know, going back to what we were saying, the, when you talk about certifications, you talk about educations and, and certificates and all of this kind of stuff, they are absolutely important to get that foot in the door. Um, this industry is far too aggressive at this point to think that you can just walk into a business and say, Hey, I want to be a hacker, like hire me onto your team. That, that doesn't happen. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I do think that there is a, an incredible opportunity for people out there that, that have an aptitude and have the knowledge and have the drive and have passion. When I hire people, I look at passion almost over everything else. Like mm-hmm. if, 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 if you are a team player and you've demonstrated that, that, that you want to contribute to the culture and that this is something that you love and that you respect and that you want to be part of. And I see a passion. I know that we, we've got the smartest people in the world. We give the adaptive, you know, penetration courses at black hat. We can teach you how to hack. It's like, we just have to make sure that you have the, the mind for it and that you have the aptitude for it. If, if we see those, then, you know, the fact that you couldn't get that last flag in the challenge mm-hmm. isn't as big of a deal. If, if, We've on the on the same other side of the coin, we've had some of the smartest and brightest hackers in the world come through our program here and go all the way through the the recruitment and 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 talk to everybody and oh yep, they're a great fit and oh look at all this cool stuff that this person published and pushed out and then they come in to give their presentation and you know, they're rude, they're standoffish, they act like other people are asking stupid questions or whatever. That person's never gonna get hired. Yeah, it's it, it. Once again, the security rock star is dead at this point. If you want to make a difference and you want to work in this industry, you need to make it about how you are improving the security posture of that client and how you are reducing the risk. Quit worrying about how cool you are. Yeah, the worst interview I've ever been in on. And I, I've sat in on a ton of interviews at this point. Um, was just this guy. He founded like three companies. That was his thing. He loved being the CEO. And he came in and every scenario we presented him with, he would rag on like, I think I know what you're say. oh yeah, he would, he would rag on like whether or not that scenario actually existed in, in real environments. It was like, this, this wouldn't happen. Like, yeah, we have screenshots. This was a, a we've done this a yeah. hundred times. Like, where do you think these screenshots came from? This is a real pen test that we did like a week ago. Like, yeah. Yeah. And he's just like, oh, I would never like, you got to have some humility. Humility and like uh, ability to explain things is, yeah. is huge. Like you were saying, you know, explain it at the CEO level, yep. but also be able to explain it technically. Like you have to have that versatility. You know, I, I, I leaned on it earlier and I used the, the boxing metaphor, but I'll give Chris Nickerson the respect he deserves for that because he was the first one I ever heard say it. And it was, you know, when you jump in with, with security testing and pen testing, if you want it to be effective, you know, you got to get in the ring and get punched. And, you know, and he was kind of taking it off of the old Mike Tyson quote, you know, everybody has a plan when they get in the ring until they get punched in the face, right? Yeah. <laughs> like same kind of deal. It's I, that talk that you're talking about is, is key. You know, when I, when I speak to executives, if I know they, they fish or if they're into cars or if they sail boats or if they play golf, I, I, I try to come up with ways to be able to, to tie back what I'm talking to, to something that they understand and that they get. Um, you know, at this point, a lot of the, a lot of the security executives and stuff that we're seeing are actually top notch people. And we don't have to do that. Right. We can be very, very blunt about what we're finding and how we're finding it, and how it was executed and all this. But I, I still think that there is an art to being able to to speak to non-technical audiences that is underlooked and underappreciated. And I think it's the difference between what makes a, a good consultant and an exceptional consultant. 
um, or even better, the difference between what makes a good consultant and and what makes an exceptional security partner. Mm, right? Yeah, I like that. <laughs> I uh, I you mentioned like the uh, a lot of the CEOs and like upper executives are technical people, or they at least have some sort of technical background. Um, I've noticed that a lot too myself. Like uh, more and more people are starting out technical. And then after a few years, they sort of, I guess, get tired of it, maybe. Uh, and, and you made a similar change because you're doing like mostly sales stuff now, right? And yeah. Yeah. Sales and uh, specifically uh, my responsible responsibility here at Coal Fire is offensive security. So I'm, a, I'm kind of the glue between the delivery team and you guys doing the technical work, the salespeople that are talking to the clients and, and helping them identify their need and their risk. And the marketing team that that's doing an exceptional job of of getting out there and showing the world just how brilliant you guys are, type of stuff that you guys are creating, type of work that we're doing, the the changes and and the impact that we're having in the industry. So, what made you want to like make that switch? Like, was there some sort of like trigger or like gradual change that yeah. you're like, you know what, I gotta yeah, no, get? No, it of was this. it was a night and day deal for me. I, I turned like 40 years old and realized I was <laughs> old as as hell and couldn't you know <laughs> climb and break into banks until I was 90. No, no. The truth of the matter was is I, I you know I've I've been in the industry for a very very long time. I, I worked on the technical delivery side for um, you know 15 years of my career fairly exclusively where I was the guy out there doing the work, writing the report, talking to the client. Um, and then I started making a change in, in direction and I started, uh, you know, managing teams, uh, lab groups, um, helping build practices. Uh, and I, I found that the, the work effort that I was putting in, I, I felt like I was making a bigger change and a bigger shift, right? We each get up in the morning, we each have the same 24 hours in the day to, to, to accomplish and do what we want to do. And, and get the things done that we want to get done for a very, very long time doing my day-to-day -day hobby of hacking, you know, some of the biggest companies in the world through our work, very fulfilling, very much what I wanted to do. But I started realizing that I was spending that time to help one person at a time or make a change in one company at a time, mm. which, which is key and important. But I, I started realizing that I was missing out on opportunity to, to have a bigger, wider reach. Fire is an amazing company to work for. I've had three different positions here in four years. Um, the positions have somewhat been flexible, as you guys well know. Yeah, you know, we do what where we we go where we're needed, and we do what we need to do. Yeah, mm -hmm. and and I think that one of the big things that came to hand is that as our company grew and scaled, and we broke the five hundred person count. You know, we're at seven hundred or something like that now. Mm -hmm. um, when, when we started growing to that size, one of the biggest things where I watched a struggle was that we had a few really great resources that were good at talking to the clients and scoping and, and helping, you know, get these engagements, um, you know, defined to where they, they were helping the client in the best way possible. But then that resource wasn't available to, you know, run a team of, of pen testers or that resource wasn't available to go out and do that pen testing. So at the time when I first moved into this role, it was really to, to try to take off some of that weight off of everybody else so that everybody else could be more efficient and effective in their job. Um, that job has now grown to where I'm a, the CXO advisor for the, the company on offensive security. And really my day-to-day -day job effort now, instead of it being the guy that's going out and doing the hacking or the guy that's you know, creating the bid sheet necessarily or, or um, you know, putting the paperwork together and working with legal, my job is now to, to go out and speak to people to understand their needs, you know, and, and sit down with these C-level executives to listen to them about the challenges, the goals, you know, the blockers that they have, 
um, the types of things that they they want to accomplish and 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 do in their next year, and then we help them to design and build um, you know corporate programs that are custom that make sense for their you know for their organization. I think when, it's amazing that like you're even able to have those conversations with high C level executives because I would think, and maybe this is just like a newish thing, that the C levels wouldn't care like. Oh, that I don't. I don't care about cybersecurity. Like that's I leave that to the CIO, and he leaves that to the C, CISO. You know, yep. and so it's cool that like you're getting in the room with the top guy, and I'll he tell actually you what's cares. Happening. And I mean, this is a bit of a stab, but I I really think that what's happening is that you know, ten years ago, going back to our game of talking about how things have changed in the industry, ten years ago, a lot of those corporate executives, you know, they they looked at this and it was an IT function. It was something that was being handled by IT. Their IT people were smart. They got it. They understood it. It's fine. All of a sudden, we start seeing companies and, and more specifically, executives being sued by, by gross negligence, right? And I think that what's happened is you've started watching these people who are leaders in the world and the industry. They get it. These are smart people. They run huge companies. They, they didn't just get handed that job. You know, They worked hard to get to where they are, and they're now realizing how important it is that that security is something that is built into their business by design, not an afterthought. Mm. Yeah, that and their data started getting exposed probably <laughs> in pictures and emails and videos. And, Absolutely. And After but, your name's in the headlines a few times, something snaps, I guess. Well, and that's yeah. the point. It's, it's gone, gone from a spot of, oh, it doesn't matter. Oh, it's not that important to, oh, this is really bad. And, oh, we need to secure and protect to... Oh my God, I don't want to be that guy. Yeah. Oh, that's me in that picture. Right. I, I don't <laughs> want to be the person that is now being held responsible for leaking 3.2 billion you know, uh, yeah. customers worth of information or whatever. When, when you talk to those executives, those executives now get it. You know, 10 years ago, they'd sit there and blow it off and, and these compromises or attacks had happened and, and it was huge and, and a really big problem. And, and people would sit there and, and literally it was like watching people in Tornado Alley do the... I don't understand why I got hit by a tornado (laughs) where you live and what you do puts you right in the line of, of that storm. Well, same thing with these big, you know, Mm -hmm. executives at these financial companies and stuff, you control billions and billions of dollars worth of money and, and assets and information that would, you know, be priceless to, to your competitor. They're going to come after you. You better believe it that we, we see people doing industrial espionage and, and targeted espionage against companies and their competitors. Not that it's legal, but there's absolutely that thing happening out there. You, you see people ask for it all the time. I don't know how many times in this job I've had to sit there and educate people. It's like what you are asking me for is a felony. <laughs> I cannot do this job for you. This is not something that wow. is, is an appropriate way to go about business. Mm. You know, here are the ways that we can help you, but we are not going to target your competitor to. <laughs> That's <laughs> wild that someone we, would even approach you about that. You like, have no idea the craziness I've heard. Please enlighten us. I mean, like I get, I get the occasional like, will you hack my friend's Facebook? Not exaggerating. You're talking I, like an industrial. I at one time had a, and I am going to be very vague about this, but I had a client that was a very, very large client with a very, very large amount of money. And I had an executive who pulled me into an office who asked if we were able to go onto the ground into a foreign country to eliminate a threat that was attacking them. What? Eliminated Literally threat. asking us to go do a hit on the people that were, were targeting and hacking them. Oh, my God. That's, that's how disconnected people are sometimes from, from what it is that we do. That's insane. And, what makes it, and it, it, you know how I answered? 
I yes, told them, no, no, I won't. And why? <clears throat> because it doesn't actually remediate or fix the problem at hand. Someone else will just go and do the same thing. That's actually, it doesn't it, clean up the issue, right? That's a very good answer. And, and, it's, and it's, again, you want to talk about the wrong way to do things. It's like going to a foreign country to kill someone because they're <laughs> yeah. hacking your server and preventing your server from functioning or something. That's crazy. How yeah. about you fix your server? Right. Dude, I thought that was insane. When it was at, like, seriously, I'm sitting in that room and it made me really, as a professional, extremely uncomfortable to have to have wow. that conversation with somebody. I still have never and will never publicly <laughs> disclose who this person is or what that company was, but it's, it, it was one of those moments where it was like, I can't believe I'm actually having this conversation right now. He pulled in the other guy and was like, can you eliminate the guy that I just talked right, to? Right. <laughs> well, that's what you worry about when you right. walk away at the end of the night. It's like, am yeah. I about to get in a car wreck? Right. Yeah. You know, this person's oh, worth hundreds of millions of dollars and they just asked me to do something that is illicit. Like, and you said, no. what is my, what is my responsibility around talking <laughs> about this or disclosing this or, you know, and in my, I, I chose the route of, of going with the education route of saying, you know, I, I understand your frustration in this. Trust me when, when I've been hacked in the past, I wanted to do something like this. I get where you're coming from, man, but this is, this is not the solution. This is not the right way to go, man. Wow. It's wacky, man. Um, on a lighter note, um, and we probably need to wrap up soon. <laughs> But um, I wanted to ask you, so you have a, a house that is pretty uh, inviting to hackers. Is that? Yeah, it's, it's, it's pretty awesome. We, uh, my wife and I have 15 acres and we live off grid on the side of a mountain, 100% off grid, our water, our internet, our power, like literally everything. Mm. Um, internet, you know, obviously we are connecting to providers via satellite and point to point ubiquity and all that. But it uh we we've kind of created a safe space and uh we're in the process right now of building out a 800 square foot garage into an odd kind of project workspace so you'll you'll go talk to people and they're creating hacker spaces or maker spaces and you know it's about art or it's about electronics um i with with some of the work effort that we're doing we're trying to teach people um some other knowledge and information things like water filtration reloading mm. Uh, ways to be able to make like self-sustaining gardens, uh, you know, aquaponics and hydroponics, all, all of these different types of things. I, I think that there's a lot of really cool information out there. And then I think if we can spin up the, the hacker crowd and the hacker mentality and the hacker mind um, to kind of take on some of these challenges that have become everly, ever increasingly popular because of like the prepper culture and all of these other people, mm. I think that if we can kind of blend some of that, we, we can get to, uh, to some really amazing things. Um, you know, I'm very happy and very proud to, to live off grid and to not be paying for a gas bill each month and paying a power bill each month. But, you know, that comes with an investment up front of, of you know, tens of thousands of dollars in solar and drilling a well and all this other stuff that, that goes along with that. So I bet there definitely is some overlap between hacker culture and prepper culture. Like, it's just, they ha I think they have, like, similar underlying, like, feelings. Yeah, the of, mentality. Like, yeah, yeah, of, like, I'm self-sustaining. I'm taking care of myself. I don't need anybody. Like, I'm here, and I can make it work. It's well, interesting when I've, when I've taken the time to go out there, and, and I don't consider myself in any way, shape, or form a prepper. I just, I grew up in Lander, Wyoming, in a family where, you know, self-sufficiency and, and self-reliance is, is just something that you did. Um, so, so for me, it's, it's not really embracing a new lifestyle. It almost kind of feels like going back to my roots a bit. Um, but I, I find it interesting how many people, when I talk to them about what we've done over the last year with this project and with our home, 
you know, the, the first question that they'll ask me is why? Why would I want to not depend upon the power grid for my power? Why would I want to understand or know how to store and sanitize my own water? Why would I want to, you know, Denver Water does that for me or Excel provides me that power or, you know, and, it, and it's, it's interesting that the moment the power goes out, they're, mm. they're sitting at home, you know, rolling blackouts during the summer because everybody's got their air conditioner kicked on mm-hmm. and all of a sudden they're sitting at home and they're flipping open their phone. And they can't even get onto their Wi-Fi to check their email. And all of a sudden they start realizing, wow, this, this world that I take, you know, that's just there for me every single day that, that I live and breathe in, that it takes nothing for, for that resource or for that capability to, to go away and to not be something that's present. And a lot of people like they're done, they're done for like without the internet access, like without internet access, a lot of stuff that I know how to do, I don't know how to do anymore. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, When I lived in town years ago, it was one of the funniest things in the world was we, we were out in Aurora, Aurora struggles with rolling blackouts during the summer. We had a a nasty blackout. And, and I remember my roommate, like he, he got off off of his computer because he was all super mad that now the internet was down because our router was down and cable was down and all this stuff was down. And he walks over and he grabs his phone and he, starts trying to do the same thing that he was just doing on the computer because he <laughs> literally is not tying together, you know, the fact that this is the impact that actually can occur when, when you don't have redundant sources. It's like if my, if, if my point-to-point ubiquity goes down, I have satellite internet. If my satellite internet goes down, I have 4G internet, right? Like, so it's always these trying to build in these redundant sources uh, for, for anything that we're relying on or anything that we're doing. It's it's funny. I have more redundant sources for internet than I do water. You would you would think that something like water, you know, and food would be your your first thing, but because of the work we do and the life we lead, you know, internet was like the first thing we had to get installed when we got up there. You can always like Google how to get water. Right, you know, right. That's nice. Yeah, exactly. And until the power goes down. Oh no. Yeah. But uh no, it's 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 been a change. Um, you know, I like I said, I grew up in the middle of nowhere, Wyoming, kind of like five, six thousand people, wonderful place to be from amazing talent amazing people out of there um but then you go to you know moving and living in cities around the world and i've you know i've lived in los angeles and orange county and rochester minnesota when i worked for mayo and out in new york for six and a half years Mm -hmm. like right in the heart of midtown and denver you know i've always had a presence since about 1996 on um but it's amazing when you when you kind of step away from the city and and you step away from the rush and and the busyness how you start thinking about things different. You know, mm. your, your brain starts functioning differently. There are things where my situa- situational awareness, for example, has gone through the roof to where I find myself being uncomfortable when I'm down in the city now and I've got, you know, a million and a half people surrounding me on 16th Street as we're walking around on a summer day, you know, where now it's like my, my natural bubble that's around me of situational awareness is several hundred feet, right? I'm worried about deer. I'm worried about <laughs> bobcats and mountain lions and bears and bobcats and stuff like this. It's a whole other world. Um, you know, so it's 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 kind of cool to go to 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 look at that shift and that change. But I highly recommend the the life and and that kind of you know lifestyle to anybody that that wants to embrace it. All right. It's a lot yeah. of work, but it's worth it. Well yeah. I think that does it. We should probably wrap up. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, Luke, it's been awesome talking to you. Thank you, guys. Um, I feel like uh, all we did is sit here and ramble about old days past. <laughs> yeah, no. That's, I guess that was the purpose, Yeah, right? that's exactly what yeah. we wanted. It's been a ton of fun. I'm looking forward to listening to it when it comes out and seeing it, our first yeah, video right, episode. Video. So that'll be, 
Yeah. Awesome. And hopefully some live episodes to come. We've been talking about maybe doing like a live from a convention, like live from Black Hat or something. That'd be great. Let's do it. Yeah, that'd be sweet. So, all right. Well, Oh, well, you got before something? we wrap up, do you do you know of any like uh, I guess events? Like, where can people find you? Yeah, uh, I next? go to most of the major. You know, next week I'm gonna I, I'm probably gonna be out for a day to RSA. I'm not gonna be out for the whole week, but I'm gonna go out for a day. Um, I do road shows, so if people pay attention and uh, follow me on on Facebook or LinkedIn or Twitter or you know any of those kind of places, I always publish. They're called Hacker Happy Hours. Um, we just wrapped up a series of them in the Southeast. We did one in Atlanta and did one in Raleigh, um, really well attended, great, great types of things. But if, if you see that I've posted this, please come out, please be social, you know, I'll buy you dinner, I'll buy you drinks. Um, it's a good opportunity to come out and learn more about our company, what we're doing, um, and ways that we can help you too. If, if you're needing, uh, help with security services. Okay. Good. And uh, do you, are you a part of any like other groups um, yep. in Denver that people may be interested in? Yeah, I, I participate or, with uh, HMIS uh, for uh, medical device security type stuff. So I go to some of their events. Um, I'm always going to be at Black Hat and DEF CON every year. You know, I'm, I'm retiring from staff this year, but I'll, I'll always attend. Mm. Um, I, I always try to make the B-Sides events. I'm actually a huge supporter of, of the B-Sides organization and, and what has, it has grown into. It was amazing to watch what started as a bit of a house party and an excuse in Las Vegas for us to have a, a massive like mansion has now been taken by Jack Daniel and everybody else and, and, and grown oh, wow. into these really amazing organizations um, all around the country. Um, but, but a lot of it is too, is reach out to me on social media. I'm, I'm readily available. Uh, I love chatting with people about this kind of stuff. LinkedIn is probably the the best place to do it. I, I tend to be the most responsive there cause it's work. Uh, the personal email gets ignored a lot for, for the work side of things, but, mm. uh, yeah, reach out to me, add me on LinkedIn. Um, I'm under my real name, Luke McComey on all those different profiles and platforms. So awesome. Cool. Well, thank you. Thank you. Thank you yeah. for coming on. Yeah, yeah and thank great. you for listening, folks, and, and watching. Yeah. So uh, we will be back next month. Uh, we I don't know if we've ironed out a topic yet, but it'll yeah. be just as awesome as this one. And, and before we get off, we do need to say shout out to Offsec Offensive Security. And <laughs> we need to forgive, forgive us for Logan's uh, impulsive uh, moment <laughs> there. Shout out to Matty Aroni. <laughs> I love you. I- <laughs> I don't have anything Shame against offensive security. Someone tells me the next time you go up Never for your certification, it. it's going to be a little harder, bud. No, I, I've just heard people say that lazy sys admin and the harder hardest boxes and yep, it's going to be oh, great. My you're goodness. dead. <laughs> All right, well, well, thanks for listening, everyone. Yeah, bye, bye. Thank have you. A good day.